As we think about our timeline, we have the Lord Jesus Christ being crucified somewhere between 29 and 33 A.D. We have Paul becoming a believer somewhere in that 30 to 33, 35 A.D. time period. And Paul, on his third missionary journey, parks himself in Ephesus for three years. And while he's there teaching the word and proclaiming the gospel, people are coming from all the surrounding areas to hear this message preached. And many people believe that Epaphras, who is mentioned in the first chapter as a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, was a man who found his way to Ephesus, was under the teaching of Paul, embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ, and took it back home to the town of Colossae. And there he shared the wonderful gospel of Christ and established a church. Amazing. Imagine just... And we think about the persecution in Jerusalem that sent the the followers of Christ out all over the Roman kingdom. Like sparks going up from a fire. And all over the Roman world, little congregations were established as people who knew Christ who had been changed by the power of Christ, went out and simply shared the gospel, and God did a work in them and established this church. This is not a church that Paul established. This is a church that Christ established through Epaphras, just an ordinary man. And so Paul, um, as he writes this letter to the Colossian church, probably writing somewhere in the time period of 62 A.D., probably 10 years. This congregation was probably 10 years old. They were fairly new in the faith. And there were some challenges this congregation had. There was probably some teaching from within the church. There was, there was teaching and influence from without that challenged these people and their beliefs. The theme of Colossians is... Christ is Lord over all of creation, including the invisible realm. He has secured redemption for his people, enabling them to participate with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. Scholars question what the exact dangers were that the Colossian church faced. But it seems clear as you look at Colossians that there was some type of Judaism that was either coming from without toward this church, trying to encourage them to make sure they held on to all the laws and the commandments, um, to to observe the Sabbaths. If you look at uh, chapter 2, verses 16, the Sabbaths and the festivals and making sure they're careful what they eat and what they drink, making sure they're careful to avoid certain things. And in chapter 2, we read this aspect in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy or empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elementary spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Wherever Christ is established, there's always going to be a call to another gospel. There's always going to be a call to something better than Christ. There's always going to be a call in that life. And a lot of times the reason we're vulnerable to this Christ, something better than Christ, is because 
of our expectation of what Christ is going to bring. Again, we have this expectation that Christ is going to make everything smooth, everything is going to go well, and I'm going to be blessed all the days of my life in every way I can think of. And so when we, when we face those challenges, we say, well, okay, here's Christ, and here's what I've heard here, but wow, is there something better? Is there something more besides suffering and persecution? That doesn't sound real fun. And so a lot of times, believers, we're constantly looking for something better. And Paul has brought out the bazookas to blow that idea out of the water. This is why in the first chapter, he puts on display who Christ is. And Cody brought us home with that last week. He is God. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the preeminent one over creation. He is the one who created the universe, which we still can't get our minds around. He is the one who holds it all together, and he created it by himself and for himself. And he is not only the, the, the preeminent one over creation, he is the preeminent one over the church. Of all those who are rushing into salvation and being saved and saved from their sin, he is the head. He is the preeminent one because he was the one who laid his life down to make it possible for there to be a church. The creator God who put it all together and the scripture clearly tells us here in verse uh, 16, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created for him and through him. Every authority, all rulers, all the angels, Satan himself, everything was created by Christ. Some scholars believe there was a folk belief out there that if you just prayed to the angels, they would protect you from the evil spirits. Paul is saying, guess what? Jesus created the angels. Jesus created and allowed the, and allowed the evil spirits to exist. Why do you go to an angel for help? Why do you go to some self-made religion to help? You have been given the best. You have been given the preeminent one. You have been given God himself. As he tells us here in verse 19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You don't have a second class God here. You don't have a messenger from God here. You have God in flesh. The God-man who loved you to the point of shedding his blood that you might be rescued from your sin and brought into his kingdom, brought from the kingdom and the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of light. Don't go for a, an imitation. Don't go for something secondary. Christ is preeminent. Don't take what you have and lay it aside for a lesser God. 
This is Paul's point here in Colossians. Is look what you've been given. You are the brothers and sisters of Christ. You are part of God's family. And yes, you may have challenges and and trials to face. But look who he is. So we look at that in the first part, and Cody covered that well last week. And he comes down at the end of verse 20, he says, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or heaven, by making peace by the blood of his cross. Because of the fall, the the creation was irreconcilably broken away from God. And he chose through the man and God, Jesus, to reconcile men to himself. And so he's now going to turn the focus in verse 21 to, and you. If you'll notice in the previous paragraph, it's been, he is the image of the invisible God. And he is before all things. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the monk among the dead. It's all about Christ. Now in this verse, verse 21, we shift focus. It moves away from him. The high and exalted, the preeminent one. It's to you. It's to me. And this is what he tells us. And this little passage, 21 through 23, is a compact version of the gospel. Straightforward, straight up. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. So this is our description. He's talking to the Colossians. This is who you once were. Once were is what? Past tense. This is where Epaphras found you when he came back with the message. You were alienated, you were hostile in mind, and you were practicing evil deeds. This is who you were, and this is who all we were, weren't we? All of us here who now know Jesus once were alienated, hostile in mind, and practicing evil deeds. Look at Romans 1. Looking at being alienated. We're all familiar with Romans 1. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So these are men who are alienated from God. Who by their unrighteousness push down the truth. Suppress the truth. Keep it from coming to the light. For what can be known about God is plain to them. God's truth is plain to all men. No matter what they say. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. We were part of that group, the alienated, the hostile in mind, and the ones practicing evil. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God 
or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. There we have this idea of the hostile mind. They're futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They had the light of the glory of God. Because they suppressed the truth, their hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds, animals, and creeping things. So they had the option to worship the preeminent one, the Lord Jesus Christ. They exchanged that worship for the worship of the creation. Images resembling man, birds, animals, creeping things. This is who we were. Ephesians 4, 18 says, They were darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. And it sounds like, oh, bless their heart, they were ignorant. Let's not forget the next phrase. Due to their hardness of heart. They were willfully ignorant. We were willfully ignorant. Because our heart, because of the fall of Adam and our sinful nature, we had a hard heart toward God. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you are alienated. Your mind, no matter if you're passive toward God or whatever, you are hostile toward God. Because the reality is, you were created as an image bearer of God. You were created for worship. If you're not doing what you were created for, you are in rebellion. You, your mind is hostile to God. You, you want to suppress the truth and you want to live with yourself being the center focus of your life. All of us have been there. All of us have been there. That's what this passage is saying. All you Colossians used to be this way and now you have been set free. They were not only alienated, they were hostile in mind. Romans 8, 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law that gets into doing the evil deeds. Indeed, it cannot. What does Paul say to the Romans? The mind set on the flesh, that's another way of saying a person who has not been changed by the grace of God. Their mind is set on the desires of their flesh. They're set on pleasing themselves. They're self-sufficient. They're self-focused. They're self-worshippers. He says their mind is hostile to God. And, indeed, they cannot submit to God's law. They don't and they can't. When we're alienated from God, we cannot please God by obeying the law. We see growing hostility in our country toward the gospel, toward Christ, toward the church, toward anything God has said is good. God says marriage is good. Now we're upset about marriage. God says I made a male and female. Now we've got a problem. People need to decide whether they're male or female. Whatever God has established, there's a growing hostility toward that. But it, but it centers, the epicenter of that hostility is on Christ. He is the one 
from who they're hostile. So this is who we used to be. This is who the Colossians used to be before the gospel was shared with them. And finally, they were doing evil deeds. Ephesians 2, 3. Remember he talks in Ephesians 2 about how we were dead in trespasses and sins and how we were under the control of the, um, the God of this world. In verse 3, he says, Among whom we all also once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Apart from Christ, we're just going to carry out our own, our, own, our own desires, our own pleasures. This is what we're going to do. It's default mode. Something has to radically happen to us to want to love Christ and follow him. Ephesians 4.19, they have become callous and have given themselves over to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. We're watching that take place in our country, aren't we? We have to go from more bizarre to more bizarre to more sinful to more sinful. It's never enough to be where we were. We have to go to the next level. There's a greediness about it. Our hearts are callous. So, we all without Christ were once alienated from God. That's the first point Paul makes into the Colossians. And he's telling them, this is who you were. Second point he makes, if we go on in our reading, well, it's hard to find Colossians all of a sudden. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. So the ones who were alienated, the ones who were hostile, the ones who were doing evil practices have now been reconciled. As he's writing this letter, he's writing this letter to people who were listening to this letter read, who once were alienated and now have been changed. The purpose of Christ was to save us from the dominion of darkness, bring us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. 2 Corinthians 15, 18 through 23. Let's find that right quick. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 23. And he says this, and this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us a ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself. Not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of of reconciliation. The greatest news right here is that we who were once his enemies have now been reconciled. We have now been made right with him. Does that go deep into your heart? Some of us growing up in Christian homes don't really think about the idea we were hostile to God. In our nature. The Bible says we all are. Just give us enough time. And we will grow and grow and grow in our hostility. John MacArthur makes the following statements. 
In justification, the sinner stands before God guilty and condemned, but is declared righteous. So in justification, the guilty and condemned are declared what? Righteous. In redemption, the sinner stands before God as a slave, but is granted his what? Freedom. So redemption, we think of slavery. We think of freedom in Christ. In forgiveness, the sinner stands before God as a debtor. He's waiting for somebody to forgive his debt load that he has. And the debt is paid and forgotten. In adoption, the sinner stands before God as a stranger. But is made a son. We were all strangers. We become sons. We were all debtors. The debt was paid. We were all slaves to sin. We've now been granted freedom because of what Christ has done. We were all guilty and condemned. We've now been declared what? Righteous. In reconciliation, the sinner stands before God as an enemy and becomes his what? Friend. Reconciliation communicates the idea that we have become a friend of God. Years ago, Don Richardson, a missionary to Papua New Guinea, wasn't called that then, was among the Sawi people. There were multiple tribes of the Sawis. And he was trying to communicate the gospel to these people. The problem was that the culture of the people made it difficult to communicate the gospel. In their culture, deception and treachery were a virtue. When Don read them the story of Judas betraying Jesus and Jesus being crucified, they rejoiced at Judas. He was the ultimate. He had, been, he had kept his, his plan secret for three years. And then finally, at the right moment, he had betrayed Jesus. What a, what a, what a hero. How do you share the gospel with a people like this? Because the Richardsons were there and they were also providing health services, there were three tribes of Sawis that were usually pretty separated and isolated, but because the Richardsons were there, they were now having contact with each other, diseases were spreading among themselves, and they were now beginning to fight against each other to the point where the Richardsons finally decided it's best if we go ahead and just leave. It's better for us to leave because with the continued spread of disease, with the continued fighting going on, these tribes will eventually wipe themselves out. And we're having a hard time figuring out how to communicate the gospel of Jesus when Jesus is considered a wimp and Judas is considered a hero. How do we do that? So he records this account. He says, the leaders from two of the warring groups confronted me, saying, Tuan, that was the name they called him. Don't leave us, they pleaded. But I don't want to kill each I don't want you to kill each other, replied he replied. Tuan, one of them said, We're not going to kill each other. Tomorrow we're going to make peace. Don and Carol hardly slept that night, wondering what daybreak would bring. Few of the Sawis slept either. 
All through the night, voices could be heard. Then as daylight broke, all was deathly quiet, just as it had been before previous battles. Then one of the tribe members, Mahane, and his wife climbed down from their houses. Mahane was carrying a child, one of his sons, own sons on his back. His wife, Sayadu, was sobbing violently. The people of the tribe also started descending from their houses. All eyes were on Mahane and Sayadu and the child. Suddenly Sayadu wrenched the boy from her husband's arms and, and ran off with him. She was not going to give him up. Now all the other women of the Hanain tribes clutched their babies close to their breasts. Someone had to give up their baby. Finally, a man named Kayo decided he would be the one. It is necessary, he reminded himself. There's no other way to stop the fighting. And if the fighting does not stop, the Tuan or the Richardsons will leave. He reached out, picked up his only child, six-month-old, his six-month-old, and he beheld the soft, warm, gurgling body of his son close to his chest one last time. His wife, Bumi, did not yet know of his decision. Then her eyes flashed toward her husband, who, holding their son in his arms, was running toward the other tribe. Bumi screamed and ran after Kayo, and Kayo did not look back. Wumi felt her feet sinking into the bog. She had missed the trail, and there was no hope now. He was too far ahead. As Kayo reached the Hanaim tribe, his heart was breaking. The men of the village were grouped together, waiting to receive the child. The peace ceremony began. Kayo says, I give you my son. And with him, my name, as he held forth his little boy. Mahor of the Hanaim tribe received him gently into his arms. It is enough, said Mahor. I will surely plead for peace between us. Then a father from the Hanaim tribe held up one of his sons. Will you plead peace among your people? Kayo was asked. Yes, he replied. Then I give you my son, and I will give you my name, said the father. Kayo took his newly adopted son, Mani, into his arms and ran quickly back to the other tribe. In each village, young and old, male and female, filed past the babies and laid their hands upon them, sealing their acceptance of peace with the other tribe. The adopted babies were then decorated, ready for a peace celebration. Don tried to comprehend what had just taken place, and he questioned one of the men. Why is this necessary? He said. Tuan, was the reply, Don't you know that it's impossible to have peace without a peace child? What will happen to Bakando and Mani, the two two little sons? Will they be harmed? He says they will not be harmed. In fact, both our villages will guard the lives of these children even more carefully than they protect their own children.
Don finally realized the contextual key to explain the gospel of Jesus Christ. There needed to be a peace child. Someone given. Someone sacrificed to bring peace between two groups that were fighting. Those tribes had peace because they exchanged their children with each other. We have peace because God gave us his only begotten son. Don't let that truth become trivial. We were reconciled to God because of Christ. Third, as we see in this passage, God's purpose for reconciliation is to make his children blameless before him. The word in order, that's the purpose clause. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What's the purpose of the peace child? What's the purpose of Christ? To present us holy and blameless before God. Jude 24 and 25 say, Now to him, this is one of our one of our benedictions we give a lot of times here at FCF. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. That's the game. That's the end game that we will be blameless and holy and above reproach. Above reproach means no one can bring an accusation against you. If we read Romans 8, Romans 8 says, He who gave you his only son, how will he not also along with him graciously give you all things? Who will bring a charge against you? Will, Will the father, will the son? Those are the only ones who bring a charge that's worth anything. Because of what Christ has done, we are blameless positionally because of Christ. And we are progressing toward blamelessness in our sanctification. And one day we will stand before God and we will be blameless before him completely free from sin. As you look at the prayer of Paul back in Colossians 1... Notice what he's saying here. We've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. We want you to know God's will, and we want you to know what's happened to you, that you are now blameless because of what Christ has done. The fourth and final point in Colossians passage here is this. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation, you are blameless if indeed you continue in the faith. <coughs> this, this if clause is a, 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 a first-class conditional, which means the assumption is you will remain faithful. You will remain steadfast. 
If you don't remain steadfast, if you don't remain faithful, then you did not know the peace child. You did not receive. You were not reconciled to God. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. The fear that Paul had was that these people who had started off well with Christ would shift their hope from Christ to something else. That's the challenge of all believers is to hold to Christ and Christ alone. Not Christ plus this. Not Christ in my good works or Christ in my good feelings or Christ in some mysterious knowledge that we somehow get. This is why doctrine is important. Sound doctrine keeps us focused like a laser beam on Jesus. False doctrine may very subtly draw us away from Jesus to something else. Angels or our own good works, our own righteousness. Our focus needs to be on Christ alone. Through the word of God, through the Holy Spirit. This is why we must be students of the word. We must be continual students of the word. Continuing to strengthen our doctrine, to strengthen our focus on Christ. Our hope is only in Christ. Our hope is not in Christ plus. All false doctrine has a mixture of truth and error. And the more subtle the truth and error, the better the deception of the false doctrine that's being taught. It's subtle. And Paul was concerned for these Colossians because of their attention to other things. In Galatians 1, Paul is very concerned about the Galatian people because of the teaching of some Judaizers who were saying, you must be circumcised. Circumcision plus Jesus is important. Be a Jew first, then Jesus. That's really important. Colossians 1, 6 through 10. Look what Paul says. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Well, it's just circumcision, Paul. What's the big deal? First you've got to be circumcised, then you trust Jesus. What's the big deal? Paul says you are going to a different gospel. This is why false doctrine is so insipid. It's insidious. It, it speaks truth and just enough error to take your soul to hell. Not that there is another gospel. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say it again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. You can just tell Paul's blood pressure is rising. For I am now seeking, am now seeking the approval of man or of God. He was a tenacious defender of the church. And this little mixture of Judaism and Christianity 
he knew would cause them to put their hope in the law, the Jewish law, as opposed to Christ. Look at Galatians 3, 1 through 6. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing by faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun with the Spirit, are you now perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness. A lot of us in our Christian life, when we first trusted Jesus, we trusted by faith. And then we said, now I've got to get busy working. I've got to be working hard now. We do seek to obey God's law, but it's not us working. It's Christ working in and through us. It's not our works plus Christ. We have nothing to bring to the table. And part of our challenge, brothers and sisters, is as we talk to people in the world, we have to help them see it's Christ and Christ alone. We have to do fine surgery to help them see that their hope must be in Christ and Christ alone. Not in a church, not in the teachings of certain people, not in their own good works, not in angels or other other situations, but only in Christ and Christ alone. Chapter 4 of Galatians. Verse 8. Formerly... When you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. After receiving Christ, if it's now all about the rules and the regulations, you have just let go of the preeminent one, the only one who can save your souls, and you've gone over here to some man-made religion that will surely take your soul to hell. Doctrine is serious. What we believe about God and Jesus is serious. How we believe we're saved is serious business. And Paul is like a tied up bulldog when he gets a sniff of false doctrine and he's let loose. Galatians 5, 1 through 6. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. In other words, if you try to work your way to salvation, you're you're putting on a yoke of slavery one more time. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no value or no advantage to you. 
I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You would, you who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Paul says, if you settle for a gospel of Jesus plus, you have no gospel. You have no gospel. The whole thrust of Colossians is, we have an all-sufficient Savior. There's only one. He needs the help of no one else. He can save you completely. And your hope must be fully anchored in him and him alone. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. How do you maintain stability and steadfastness? You must be in the word. You must grow in your understanding of who God is and who you are and what's, how salvation takes place. It is really crucial that you understand those principles. Because if you don't, it doesn't take a whole lot to slide off center and have your hope in something else besides Jesus Christ. That's why we must be in the Word to be stable and steadfast. When we're not in the Word and we hear some wonderful speaker who has some great new idea, we can easily be drawn away, not only from the church we attend, but more, more desperately than that, drawn away from Christ himself. There are a thousand Gospels in the United States of America. Just turn on the TV. Just turn on the radio. Just scan through the internet. There is every possible Jesus plus gospel out there you can find. And our job, brothers and sisters, is first for us to be stable and steadfast. And secondly, to point people to the way. To Christ and Christ alone. The one who is preeminent over the creation and who has reconciled us to God. This is our calling to rescue them. In 2 Corinthians 5, he says, you have now been made ambassadors of reconciliation. You are no ambassador of reconciliation if you're teaching a Jesus plus gospel. If you preach a Jesus plus gospel, don't go out there and preach it. Do we know what we've been given? We have been given the pearl of great price. Christ. Christ himself, not some messenger, died for us. Was buried, was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. In this world, we're going to have challenges. We're going to have Difficult things to deal with. And holding on to Jesus, you're still going to have pain. and There's going to be suffering. 
If you go, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be something else out here besides Jesus. What else could there be? Because I am suffering. Do not be tempted to look for another solution. Paul didn't. Paul rejoiced in his suffering. He rejoiced in his imprisonments. He rejoiced in his beatings. He rejoiced in Christ. Today, is Christianity just some things you believe? Well, I believe all the right stuff. Or have you really accepted the peace child? Have you put your hands on him? Are you holding on to Jesus? As your only hope, are you steadfast and firm? The word helps us there. The community of faith helps us there. The encouragement of the saints. Paul, the uh, the writer of Hebrews warns, do not give up being together. Because the deceitfulness of sin can overtake you. We need each other to keep pointing each other to Christ. We need to be in the Word, nurturing our soul. We need to be in prayer to Christ. We need to be about what He's called us to do. And our walk with Jesus can't just be based on emotion. We're not going to always be on an emotional high with Jesus. Newsflash. There's going to be some dark days. There's going to be some challenging days. And when they're challenging, where do we look? To Christ. We preach the gospel to ourselves. We preach Colossians 1, 21 through 23 to ourselves. I was once alienated, hostile to God, and wicked in my behavior. But Christ, because of his shed blood, has reconciled me to God. And for the purpose of making me holy and blameless. And I'm called to pursue that. And he's promised in this that to hold on to him and I will see this through to the end. This is not a holding on in your own strength and your own power. The understanding here as you read the scripture is keep your focus on Christ He will bring you safely home. That's the whole part of Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Are you able to get there on your own? No, you're not. Praise God, He will get you all the way there. All the way there. So trust Christ and Him alone. Rejoice in who He is. Grow in your understanding of who He is. Grow in your relationship with Christ. The one who's preeminent has stooped down to be your Savior. Can we fathom that? 
And he's called us, as Paul says at the latter part of this, this verse, to be a messenger of the gospel to other people. May God continue to grow us in that. That we can proclaim the gospel of Christ and Christ alone to a lost and dying world. And that we will be firm and steadfast, rooted only in him. This is Paul's passion in Colossians. He didn't want to see them shipwreck their faith by leaning on something besides Christ. The reformers called it solus Christus, Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. And we thank you for the gospel that you have brought down to us. Faithfully carried from generation to generation through your word and through your spirit and through your saints. Father, if there's anyone here who doesn't know Christ, I pray that you would quicken their heart, that you would do a work by your Spirit to show them their sin and your righteousness and the judgment to come. And Lord, we are all here available to help answer questions, to help people sort through those issues. Father, for those of us who know you, May we never take for granted who you are. May we never look for another Savior or something to add to Jesus. Father, thank you. That your salvation is sure, your salvation is perfect, and we can rest in Christ, in Christ alone. Father, I pray you would use us more and more each day to help rescue people who are alienated and separated from God. In Jesus' name, amen.